Amen. All right, please turn with me. The book of 2 Timothy, chapter 4. Tim, thanks. Oh, gone. <laughs> Simon, thanks. All right, 2 Timothy, chapter 4. I want you to imagine for a moment that you are face to face with that moment in which you have an opportunity to speak your final words on this earth. What will be on your mind? Or what will be on your lips? I want to share with you the words of a few others who have spoken through the centuries in that moment when they were about to depart this life. Luciano Pavarotti said to his manager, I believe that a life lived for music is an existence spent wonderfully, and this is what I've dedicated my life to. Actress Ethel Barrymore said, is everybody happy? I want everybody to be happy. I know I'm happy. I read that and I thought I can imagine my wife saying that. John Wayne turned to his wife and he said, of course I know who you are. You're my girl and I love you. Steve Jobs said, oh wow, oh wow, oh wow. I wonder what he saw. Joan Crawford uh, yelled at her housekeeper who was at that moment praying and she said, don't you dare ask God to help me. Joseph Addison was a Christian living in the 1700s and he said to his family, see in what peace a Christian can die. What will be on your mind at that moment is most likely what has been on your mind throughout your life. And that's just your final moment to speak what is on your heart. Uh, We're going to conclude our study of 2 Timothy this morning, look at chapter 4, and we're going to uh, look at what was on Paul's heart, Paul's mind, as he spoke uh, his final words to his spiritual disciple, Timothy. And see what we can learn from Paul's final words, the things that were most on his heart. So I want you to read with me, beginning chapter 4 and verse 1. Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and they will turn away their ears from the truth, and they will turn aside to the myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul's final words to Timothy were simply this, Timothy, fulfill your ministry. Timothy, live your life in service for others in the glory of God. Timothy, you've been given this treasure, as Paul described it, this precious entrustment, which is the gospel, nothing more valuable. It is what men and women, women need most in this life and in the next. And your life is to be given in bringing people into intersection with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Timothy, fulfill your ministry. Don't miss out on this brief opportunity that you have on this earth, Timothy. Time is short. Fulfill your ministry. Remember when I was in high school, I first read these words by Henry David Thoreau. The mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. I remember the first time I read it, I thought, wow, that is is deep. That's, That's profound. And then I thought, is that true? Is that true of the people that I know? Do most people lead lives of quiet desperation? Well, you know, through the years, I I talk to lots of people and I listen to lots of people because uh, I enjoy 
really learning uh, what are people deeply thinking about? What are their greatest senses of, of, of need and hopes and desires? And so uh, I, I've kind of modified Thoreau's statement. This is how I would put it. The mass of men lead lives of quiet drudgery and noisy distraction. This, this is just my opinion. But in all of my conversations, this is what I discover. The mass of men lead lives of quiet drudgery and noisy distraction. In other words, most people are just going through the motions. They're just going through the motions of work. Oftentimes, they're just going through the motions of family. They're just doing it because they've always done it, and it's not really all that pleasant. But they don't stop and reflect about why they're doing what they're doing. Instead, they look for distractions, noisy distractions. Everybody's working for the weekend, right? Or they're working for their hobby, something that will distract them from this life that just really seems to be accomplishing nothing, going nowhere. But they don't take the time just to stop and reflect. Why is life going nowhere? Why am I doing what I am doing? What am I actually made for and called to do? They don't ask the question, why? And so what Paul does here in this final chapter final book, final words that he will speak to Timothy is he takes Timothy all the way back to the why. He says, Timothy, the reason that we live our lives is because Jesus has appeared and Jesus will appear again. Okay, our why is Jesus. Our why is because Jesus has already appeared once and he will appear again. And the two appearings of Jesus actually frame all of human history and they give us meaning and purpose for life. His first appearing, as we just sang, was to remove that debt of sin and reconcile us to God so that we could live well. Because God wants us to live well. God wants to give us life and he wants us to enjoy life. John chapter 10, Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and they they might have that life abundantly. Most men and women lead lives of quiet drudgery and noisy distraction because that's exactly what the thief wants to do. He wants to steal any opportunity for joy and peace and hope and meaning and purpose. He is intent upon destruction, Jesus said, but I have come as a good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for a sheep, and the good shepherd lays down his life for a sheep so the sheep can actually live in the fullness of life. I've come that they might have life and that they might have life abundantly. You know, you see this theme echoed throughout all of Scripture. If we go all the way back to the Pentateuch, Moses' writings, some of Moses' final words in the book of Deuteronomy, he said to the Israelites, he said, I've set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse So choose life by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him, for this is your life and the length of your days. And this is what God longs for you, that you would have life, rich life, full life. Paul says to Timothy, this is how you have life, Timothy. It's by giving your lives for for others, right? In the name of Jesus. Remember, church, the gospel is free. It is an absolutely free gift. It's life that lasts forever. 
And John will tell us, actually, it's, it's life that lasts forever. It's eternal life. But he, he literally says it's life of the age. It's of a, not just a quantity, but if it's, it's of a quality that's different. It's life with God. And the moment that you believe in Jesus Christ, that debt of sin is removed, so the barrier to you having life is removed, and you enter into life. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, you possess eternal life now. You will enjoy eternal life forever, but God's intention is that you begin to enjoy eternal life now. How do you do that? You live well and you live wisely. That's why Jesus came the first time, that we might have life and might have it abundantly. And when he returns, he is going to evaluate our lives and test us. Did we, in fact, use that gift well? Eternal life is an absolutely free gift, men and women. But it matters how we live. It matters to God how we live because he wants us to have the best. Because he loves us and longs for us to experience all the richness that he has given to us. And so he will return, in fact, to evaluate how we have lived. Notice what he says to Timothy in verse 1 again. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom. Timothy, fulfill your ministry. In other words, Paul could not have said it, in a sense, more intensely. Timothy, I solemnly charge you Not just by God the Father, but also by Jesus Christ who will return again. Timothy, you have a short moment on earth here. Live it really well. I want you to turn with me to the book of Matthew. Hold your place here in 2 Timothy and turn to Matthew. Chapter 24 and verse 42. Matthew 24, verse 42. Jesus says, Therefore be on the alert. For you do not know which day your Lord is coming, but be sure of this, if the head of the house had known at what time in the night the thief was coming, he would have been on alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Jesus is talking about himself. They probably didn't know he was talking about himself. But he said, I'm like the master of a household. And I'm going away on a journey. And as I go away on the journey, I'm going to say to you, please take care of my household. Take care of my home. Take care of my creation. Take care of what is most valuable to me, my most valuable, precious treasure, which is men and women. Creatures made in my image, men and women that, I, that I've given my life for. Because I will return and I will evaluate, have you lived well? This stewardship that you have is ministry. Right? The stewardship that you have is people. Paul's argument is simply this. The only life worth living is the life of ministry. Now don't, don't misunderstand me. Some of you are saying, well, wait a second. I'm not a pastor and I'm not a missionary. And I say, praise God. That's wonderful. No problem there. That's really not relevant because I'm not talking about a job. I'm talking about your calling. The only life worth living is the life of ministry. The only life worth living is a life for others in the name of Jesus. No matter what your job is, No matter what your station in life is, the only life worth living is a life that is lived on behalf of others in the name of Jesus. And so my challenge to you this morning is simply this. What is your ministry? 
Every Christian has been given by God a ministry. Every single Christian has been given by God a ministry. It was Paul's words at the end of Colossians. He said, Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. Archippus had a ministry. Timothy had a ministry. Paul had a ministry. You have a ministry. You have people that God has put in your sphere of influence. It's a unique set of people that you can influence in a unique way that no one else can influence just like you influence. And it may be one or it may be a thousand It may be quiet behind the scenes or it may be proclaiming, but it is bringing these lives into intersection with the love of Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel so that their lives can be changed and that they too can live lives of meaning and purpose and fulfillment on this earth. Years ago, I read the story of Robertson McQuilk, and I was deeply, deeply moved by his story. He was uh, the president of Columbia uh, Bible College and Seminary, and he, he had been a missionary in Japan, and then he came back to lead Columbia. And as he was leading the Bible College and the Seminary, he was going through a period of great growth, and the demands on his time were getting greater and greater and greater. And about the same time as things were really taking off at the seminary, uh, his wife began to show signs of Alzheimer's. She was just 57 years old. And uh, she was needing more and more of his time at the same time that the seminary was needing more and more of his time. And people were pressuring him. They said, you know, this is your ministry. You are affecting thousands of people. Others can care for your wife, but you need to step into this ministry. And as they were saying that to him, he felt convicted otherwise, and he stepped back and he resigned so that he could care for his wife. And he wrote this. Recently, it has become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time she is with me and almost none of the time that I am away from her. It is not just discontent. She is filled with fear, even terror, that she has lost me and always goes in search of me when I leave home. So it is clear to me that she needs me now full time. The decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as I told the students and faculty, as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it. But so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of her debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic, but there is much more. I love Muriel. She is a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, occasional flashes of that wit I used to so relish. Her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual distressing frustration. I don't have to care for her. I get to. It is a high honor to care for so wonderful a person. If I took care of her for 40 years, he says again, I would never be out of her debt. The word that Paul uses here for ministry is diakonos, from which we get the word deacon. It just means service. It just means give your life for others. And it may be thousands, or it may just be one. And it may change throughout the course of your life. The impact for Jesus may be obvious. You might take students into your home and disciple them, and they go out as missionaries and plant churches all over the world. Or it may be much more subtle. 
where no one is really seeing it or praising it or rewarding it. It may be that you care for your spouse or you care for your parents or you care for your children and you are cleaning and wiping and feeding and you are loving in the name of Jesus and for Jesus and you're building this sense of confidence and trust in them so that you will get to speak truth into their lives for a lifetime even though no one sees that or praises that. Or maybe it will be very public and many people praise it, but it's still the same because God doesn't evaluate based on whether it is one or a thousand. What he evaluates is, have you discovered your ministry right now at this point in time? Are you giving your life in service for others in the name of Jesus Christ so that they can know him and experience his love and trust him more because you have given and given and given your life for others. This is Paul's argument. The only life worth living is a life for others in the name of Jesus. Now that's going to be hard. It's going to be a hard life. Would you turn back to 2 Timothy? Read with me again. Chapter 4, verse 5. If you are living for others, it will be hard. Verse 5, he says, But you, Timothy, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Timothy, fulfill your ministry. The culture that we live in is, is committed completely to self. And you will be affirmed in your pursuit of self. And if you choose to live a life of sacrifice for others, you will frequently not be praised for that. You may, in fact, be ridiculed for that because it is so contrary to the mindset of the culture. Again, back in high school, I first saw this. You probably recognize it as well from high school psychology class. It's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? The bottom is physiological needs. You need food, water, warmth, rest, and then safety needs, safety, security. But then as your needs become more sophisticated, you need belongingness, intimate relationships, and then you need esteem, prestige, a feeling of accomplishment. And finally, the pinnacle is self-actualization, achieving your full potential, right? That's, that's the pinnacle of mankind. That's what you're aiming toward. That's what you're striving toward. And I would argue, no, there, there's something that's far beyond that. It's above this pinnacle, and that's when you actually get past yourself. And you choose to live for others for Jesus' sake. Even so much so that when your basic needs of food and water and warmth and rest are not met, you're willing to go without some of those basic needs so that others can know the love of Jesus Christ. Or when your needs of safety and security are not met, you choose to set those aside and maybe even put your life, your health at risk so that others can know Jesus Christ. And maybe when others all fall away and you don't have intimate relationships because you're following Jesus and others are not, you say, that's all right, I can live without that as long as others know Jesus, and you you give that up. And no one's praising you. Your esteem needs are not met. In fact, they're ridiculing you because you're living for others, for Jesus. And you know, you don't really feel fulfilled because in a sense, what you were, you think, well, I was really most designed for this, but you know, I don't get to do that right now. And that's okay because through my life, others are coming to know Jesus Christ and to know his love. And you know what? I've given up everything in the triangle and I have found life. Wow. The Maslow's hierarchy of needs only understands things from a purely human perspective. 
The divine perspective is, do you want to have life and have life abundantly? Life actually that is the, the, the most fulfilling is when you completely get over yourself and you live for others and for Jesus. You set life aside, your own life aside. You die to self, you say no to self, and you say yes to Jesus and yes to the needs of others. That's life, men and women. That's Paul's argument. That's the only way to live life. That's how Jesus lived. So he said, in Matthew chapter 16, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus said, I have an invitation for you. Pick up a cross. Pick up a cross. Sounds appealing, doesn't it? Come follow me and die. Die to yourself. Die to your own aspirations. Die to what you think you want most and need most. Oh, and by the way, when you do that, you will find the richest, most full, abundant life. Follow me because this is how I have lived. I want you to turn the book of Philippians with me. Chapter 2, verse 5. Philippians 2, verse 5. Paul wrote, have this attitude, have this mindset, have this orientation toward life, which was also embraced by Jesus. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant or a slave and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was not pursuing self-actualization. He was pursuing sacrifice so that we could have life. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, that's the, the order of things in God's economy. He says, he says, give your life away. Give your life away, and you will receive life. Give your life away, and you will have the richest, most full, abundant life you could possibly experience. This is exactly what Jesus did. Follow Jesus. It's an invitation, right? It's an invitation. It sounds difficult. It sounds hard when Jesus says, come, follow me and die. But, it, but it's really life, right? It's life. You fulfill your ministry. Live for others, Paul says to Timothy. And then he reminds him, Timothy, you are not alone. Right? You are not alone. Turn back to chapter 4, 2 Timothy and verse 6. Paul says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul says, Timothy, you're not alone. I I have lived well, Timothy, I've lived well in front of you. Follow my example. In fact, Paul will say that frequently to all of the believers that he poured his life into. He says, just follow me. There are others who have gone before you who can provide an example for you. Philippians chapter 3, Paul wrote, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Look at the pattern of my life. Literally, he says, become fellow imitators with me. 
as he will tell the Corinthian believers, as I have imitated Christ. Follow that pattern. You know, what I found interesting is, as we've been going through this series, I always get feedback on little points throughout the series. What I, what I got the most requests for uh, during the series was my list of biographies, which, you know, as a reader, I go, awesome, thanks. I mean, that makes me happy that you want to read. But I, it really warmed my heart because I, I think biographies are so powerful because they show you a pattern. This is how others have done it before. Walk according to this pattern. Paul says this to Timothy. Timothy, you're not alone. Follow the pattern. A couple observations about the pattern in Paul's life. The first is this. He, he knew his fight. right? He knew his race. Verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. Paul was, was aware of what God had called him to do. He knew God didn't call him to do someone else's ministry. His ministry was different than Peter's and different than John's. They were mostly in Jerusalem. Paul was out. Paul had a different calling, a different ministry, mostly to Gentiles, not to Jews. Paul knew what God had called him to do. Do you know what God has called you to do? Second observation about Paul's ministry is this, that he was always looking forward. Paul was always looking forward. Yes, he stopped to celebrate, but he was always forward thinking, right? Forgetting what lies behind. said, this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. And reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He was always looking ahead. It wasn't that he literally forgot the past. He remembered the past. Right? He remembered and even reminded Timothy in his first letter that he was a blasphemer, a violent aggressor, a, a, a persecutor of the church. He was responsible for the imprisonment and death of Christians. It's not that he forgot those things, but he recognized that God was able to use even those horrible things in his past to build on for the future. And so he didn't live paralyzed by his failures in the past. Instead, he allowed God to build his ministry and his impact on others' lives based upon even his failures, not just his success. And I think for so many of us, we say, no, I don't have a ministry. God can't use me. Why? Because we are so stuck in failures in the past. And God says, no, I, I, yes, I, I mean, I see all things. I know the failures, but I've forgiven all of your sins. And in fact, sovereignty means that I have such power that I can take your failures and I can create impact through those. That, that's sovereignty. That's power. And a couple of us, we have a, a friend who uh, went into prison this week. Tuesday, Tuesday he reported he, he will be in prison uh, potentially eight years. Uh, he's a believer, but he made some horrible choices. And in getting caught... And acknowledging those choices, God moved in a really powerful way in his heart. And he, there's, there's a humility and an honesty in him that I've, I've never seen before. He's not angry that he got caught. He's not angry at the system for giving him a, a pretty stiff sentence for the crimes that he committed. Instead, he's seeing God's hand in it. And he's looking forward and he's already talking about and talking to people who've described for him the ministry that he can have in prison and what he can do in prison and leading people to know Jesus Christ and ministering practically to these men in prison, helping them get their high school degrees and move forward in life when they leave. He's already looking forward. 
He's not dismissing the past, but he's seeing God's beauty and God's power to take even a broken past and do beautiful things through it. Men and women, you have a ministry from God. It's not just that it doesn't matter what the past is. It's that God can take the brokenness of the past and even use it in a more powerful way for you to serve others. Paul says, Timothy, you are not alone. There are others who have gone before you. But he also acknowledges part of Paul's pathway is that there were times that Paul had to walk alone. There were times that people around Paul abandoned Paul. Read with me chapter 4, verse 9. Remember, Paul is in prison in Rome. And he says, Timothy, make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Uh, You know, uh, Demas is an interesting case study. He's only mentioned three times in the New Testament. Uh, The first time is uh, in the book of Philemon, and Paul says, uh, Demas is one of my fellow workers, my co-worker in the cause of Christ. The next time he's mentioned in Colossians, and it's just Demas. Demas greets you. And then this third time, Demas has loved this present world, and he has deserted me. Now, uh, if you look at these chronologically, it seems that there's a progression. What happened to Demas? Paul says what happened to Demas is he just fell in love with the world. He fell more in love with the world than he was in love with Jesus. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Uh, John's not saying that uh, if the love of the world creeps into you that you're not a Christian. He's just simply saying that you can't have two things in first place in your heart. You can't have two things in first place. Life doesn't work that way. So what Jesus meant in the Sermon on the Mount when he said no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and he will despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You cannot serve God and anything else. You can't have two things in first place. The love of God has to be first and foremost. And when the love of God begins to retreat and other loves begin to grow, you you won't serve God. You won't sacrifice for others. You will be back in the mentality of the world and you will love self and you will serve self. Uh, Many of you know my uh, my story of um, moving down here from from New York, but there's there's more that was going on in my heart than just uh, geographical moves. Uh, when we were when we were living in New York, um, I was I was pretty popular, um, and you know at least in my mind, in my mind I was pretty popular. And you know if I'm honest, I think that 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 probably was a god for me. You know, having friends and friends acknowledging, I think that probably was had become a, a god for me. And uh, then I was ripped out of that setting. Right, end of eighth grade and ninth grade, we. We actually moved to Michigan for a year, and um, I, I was not happy. That, so I'm, you know, I'm brand new, and I'm starting over, and if popularity is a god, and you know no one, and no one sits with you in the lunchroom, that, that's a tough place to be. And so it, there was something going on in my mind where I was idealizing all that was New York, right? all that was Ithaca, New York, and if I could just get back there. At the same time, though, God was stirring in my heart. 
I can see it now as I look back. I didn't really understand it at the time. But God was stirring in my heart. It's freshman year in high school. He was pulling on me, and I just started to want to know God better. I think I had become a believer as a child, but I feel like I was just beginning to really listen to the Lord. He was beginning to pull on my heart. Now, interestingly, we finished that one year in Michigan, and uh, my mom and I ended up going back to New York. My dad didn't have a job, permanent job, so he consulted uh, in Washington, D.C. My sister went back to Michigan State to continue college, but mom and I lived with friends back in New York, so here I was. I'm back in the promised land, right? <laughs> but it was interesting because God had been pulling my heart one direction, just kind of toward him. And as I stepped back in, I saw that all of my friends, their hearts had moved in a different direction. They, uh, all of them, all of my friends had begun to, be, to become um, sexually promiscuous. All, all of my friends had begun to use drugs at some level. And I looked at their lives, and I didn't want their lives. And you know what? I was now back in the promised land, and once again, I had no friends. I had no friends. They didn't invite me to their parties any longer. It's interesting, when Tristy and I first met and we began to tell one another our stories, she had the same experience. She began to walk with the Lord in college, and she ended up having no friends. So a period of time where she went back home and was living at home, and one of her high school friends, or one of her best, best friends, this guy called her and said, hey, we're having this party, do you want to come? And she said, yeah, that, that sounds great, but I just need to tell you that I'm walking with Jesus now, I love Jesus, and she shared her testimony and what Christ was doing in her life, and at the end of that conversation, he, he, this friend said, oh, that's nice, and never called again. And so she went for a period of time with no friends. Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. He's deserted me. What happened? He fell in love with the world. He fell in love with the world. Before I did uh, this job, I was working with students across the street. Uh, It's a college pastor here. And I, uh, I inherited the ministry actually from Jeff Payne. So some of you guys know Jeff Payne. Uh, Jeff's a wild man, and Jeff is Jeff's a high risk taker. Jeff, uh, he he's always ridden a motorcycle since I've known him. I've seen him crash twice, and I mean literally, I've seen Jeff crash his motorcycle, and then he just gets back up because he was a linebacker right at A and M. He seems impervious. Jeff just he just keeps bouncing back. Jeff's a, a he's a risk taker. All right, so when I inherited college ministry from him, one of the things that Jeff would do in college ministry is the last Sunday of the year he would have an open mic for the seniors. So seniors could just walk up and they could say anything about what God had been doing in their lives through college. So, you know, Jeff did it. I thought, great idea. I've inherited this ministry. Jeff knows something about ministry. I'll just keep doing open mic with seniors. So my first open mic that first May, I open it up. I let seniors begin to speak, right? And, you know, a couple of them stand up and they say some really cool stuff about what God's been doing in their life. I think they probably even said some great things about me which was wonderful in my impact. Oh, that's great. You know, this senior, hey, senior open mic, what a wonderful thing. And then this guy walks up to the mic, right? He steps up to the mic and he says, uh, most of you know me, right? Because he had been deeply involved in the college ministry for several years. He goes, most of you know me. I don't believe in God anymore. I've completely lost my faith. All this stuff that you're saying in here, it's garbage. Have a great life walks down the center aisle, and he's out. Yeah, everything just kind of crashed that much. Like, boom. <laughs> what, do we, what, do we, what do we do with this? 
All right, where do we go from here? How do we rescue this moment? What happened to this guy? I mean, I had students coming up to me afterwards. What happened to him? What happened to him? You know, what happened to him is that he fell in love with the world while he was at Texas A&M University. He, he didn't fall away because of some great intellectual barrier to the faith. He made moral choices. He made choices of the heart. He allowed his heart to be pulled away, and he fell in love with the world. And as a result, he fell out of love with Jesus. And if you choose to walk with Jesus for a lifetime, you're going to have some people running with you, and then you'll look around and you realize they're not running with me any longer. You will choose to run with Jesus for a lifetime, and you're actually going to find people who, who actively try to destroy your faith and what you do. Look at chapter 4, verse 14. Paul warns Timothy, he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. But you, be on your guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. Uh, if you picked up something from this study of Second Timothy, I, I hope that you remember that the course of human history is not upward. It is generally downward. Persecution for the church will get worse. It's actually very, very bad in many places throughout the world. And I think we should expect and anticipate and be ready for it to get harder to be a Christian, not easier to be a Christian, that we will more and more have to count the cost of our faith. And the question then will be, how do we move on? How do we move on when there are some who are peeling away and not walking with Jesus, when there are some even in our close circle who are persecuting us and pressing us for our faith? How do we move on? Move on because of this. God is always with us. He did not promise that it would be easy. In fact, Paul issued a promise earlier to Timothy. He said, in fact, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Promise. How do you move on? You move on because your God will never leave you or forsake you or abandon you, ever. Read with me. Chapter 4, verse 16. Paul says, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me, and he strengthened me. The Lord stood with me, and he strengthened me. God is always faithful to his people. God is always faithful to his purposes. God is always faithful to his promises. Always. God is always faithful. Paul says, everyone else abandoned me. No one came from Asia to speak on my behalf. No one defended me whatsoever. But I sensed in that moment when men had abandoned me that God was with me. God was for me. Remember the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are standing in the fire? The Persians look in the fire and they say, this is strange. There's another man in there. We, didn't, we only threw three in. There's a, there's a fourth one, but he, he's glowing. He's glowing actually brighter than the flames. He, he's, like, he's like a son of man. He's like a god. He's like an angel. He's, he's beautiful. He's radiant. Who is he? I believe that's Jesus. I believe that's Jesus. I, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. God will never abandon his people. God will never abandon his purposes. Read with me again, verse 17. He said, the Lord stood with me. The Lord strengthened me. Why? So that through me, the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all of the Gentiles might hear. This is God's intention. Even, even in the midst of suffering and abandonment, it, it is that men and women would know the love of Jesus Christ, right? This is great commission. 
Make disciples of all nations. Church, this is why we're here. Remember, Great Commission, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And then there's a promise attached to it. What? And behold, I am with you, even to the end of the age. I will not abandon you, and I will not abandon my purpose. This is why the church is here. God is always faithful to his promises. Verse 17 at the end, he said, And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. And the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, and he will bring me safely to his, his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. In other words, Paul says, God's promise wasn't that I would live forever on this earth. God's promise wasn't that I would be uh, saved from persecution or suffering. God's promise wasn't that I would always be healthy and that I would always be wealthy. God's promise was that he would deliver me safely into his eternal kingdom. My eternity was secure and that his son would return and his son was established his kingdom on earth and set all things right and bring blessing to all men. And so now I want to live a rich, full, satisfying life. How do I do that? Well, I live for others in the name of Jesus. Famous last words. Here's one of my favorites. Pope Alexander VI. He said, okay, okay, I'll come. Just give it a moment. <laughs> okay, okay, I'll come. Just give it a moment. What was on Paul's mind at the very end? What was on Paul's mind at the very end was others. Others. Paul lived for others in the name of Jesus. And I want to challenge us, church. Fulfill your ministry. The one that God designed you for, the one that God has surrounded you with, it's there. Fulfill your ministry. The men and women around you that you can impact in the name of Jesus, that you can love for the sake of Jesus, That's the only life worth living. It's a life for others. Let's pray. Father, I pray this week that you would protect us from loving the world. I pray, Father, this week that we would diligently and expectantly look for the ministry that you have given us. That we would serve and that we would sacrifice with joy knowing that this is the example of Jesus. Father, I pray that we would not live for ourselves, but that we would live just for Jesus, for his honor and his glory, and for others to know him and to lead that rich and full life that only he can provide. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great life this week, living for others. We'll see you next week.